Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Confront the COVID crazies or they're never going to let it go. The primary polls are way more accurate than we actually thought they could be, so Trump leading in the general election swing state polling means, well, he's your next president. DEI in medicine means you could be at risk of dying. The Federalist Papers study guide continues with Federalist number 15 under the microscope. I'm Andrew Coppins. This is a Truth or Fiction Tuesday here on Critical Thinking. Welcome on into Critical Thinking. I'm Andrew Coppins. Do not forget you can follow me on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Apple Podcasts or something else. Either follow or subscribe. Make sure you're rating and reviewing and downloading that podcast. It is the easiest way for us to get more and more listeners. And if you're watching this, you're probably doing so on X. I am at the Coppins Show there or on the Rumble channel, rumble.com backslash critical thinking. Do not forget that you can just simply make sure that you are following those pages to see the show every single Monday through Friday. And like I mentioned yesterday on the program, there will be some time changes and some differences happening just depending on some scheduling things on my end. So I will let you know as to when we can expect this show to kind of come out each day as my schedule kind of figures itself out in the next few weeks here. But all of that to say this, I hope that you guys are enjoying the program and I hope that you guys interact with the program. Again, at The Coppin Show on X, on Facebook. It's at Critical Thinking Show on Instagram. Although I have not been very active over there. That all notwithstanding, we have a ton to get into on today's program. So let's just dive right on in because it is a Truth or Fiction Tuesday. And the first Truth or Fiction is going to come in the form of DEI in medicine. Truth or Fiction, folks. DEI puts the lives of your loved ones at risk. 
Now, before I give my answer to this, I want to give evidence because this is a pretty bold statement that Elon Musk, the owner of X, the owner of Tesla, SpaceX, all of that sort of stuff, Starlink, we could go on and on, Neuralink, on and on and on as to what he actually owns. But there, that is a very bold statement. So what is the evidence? Well, he was responding to um, a tweet thread, or a, excuse me, a X thread from one Ben Shapiro, who had this to say. Number one, DEI in medicine means that even if doctors injure patients, they might still be protected, even promoted. It means that top hospitals are abandoning key metrics when hiring surgeons, and it means research by whites may be disregarded. Here's what I've found. Now, Shapiro continues with the first piece of evidence. Sources tell me Wake Forest Medical School is about to graduate Kashaili del Rosario, the med student who injured a conservative patient and bragged about it. Wake Forest allowed Rosario to lay low, take a voluntary leave of absence when this scandal broke. And if you're not watching on the Rumble channel or on X, what she wrote is that I had a patient I was doing a blood draw on see my pronoun pin, and loudly laugh to the staff. She, her, well, of course it is. What other pronouns even are there? It, I missed his vein, so he had to get stuck twice. And this was in response to um, somebody talking about transphobia because the badge has had she, her pronouns for over a year. I'm cis and I wear it to help my patients and colleagues who fall under the trans umbrella feel a little more comfy. In the last few weeks, several cis patients have berated me for it. So what we are seeing here, folks, is literally viewpoint discrimination on both sides, by the way. But here's the rub. When we see she, her, he, his, all of this pronoun crap, People like me, it's an automatic rebel moment. And why? Because what you are signaling to us is that you are of that woke variety, that you are not in team reality. You don't live in real land. You just live in la-la land. And it's not about respect. It's not about any of the things that you want to make it about. It is about objective truth. And you are lying and that's the real rub of all of this. That doesn't mean that I have to be disrespectful to you. But on the flip side of that, if somebody is being disrespectful towards you or laughing at you or, or whatever else because you do those pronoun things, here's the rub, okay? That doesn't also give you the right to put the lives of your patients at risk. And yes, by the way, Missing a vein can put your patient's life at risk. But Shapiro continues and points out this. I'm also told that UPenn Health has hired Ewan Leo, Del Rosario's classmate who said it, quote, seemed karma-tick when she injured the patient who mocked her pronoun pin. Wake Forest showered Liu with awards for excellence in patient care, and she now focuses on LGBTQ plus health. Heard this story firsthand weeks ago and seems like people are misinterpreting, understandably, from the phrasing. 
To clarify, the missed stick was completely an accident and just seemed karmatic. She is kind and professional and would never harm anyone intentionally. Again, I'm going to go back to this. I had a patient I was doing a blood draw on and, well, I missed his vein, so he had to get stuck twice. There's no nuance to that. It's saying I stuck the patient and I missed. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, shucky darns. I don't feel bad about it. Your first obligation as a medical student, as a practicing doctor, is do no harm. And you not feeling bad about your patient because of some political thing, when you do harm to them, that's a, that's a you problem. That's a you're an asshole problem. Kind, right? If you are that kind, you don't laugh at that situation. It's not funny. But just how pervasive has DEI become in the medicine world? Well, Ben gave us a bunch of videos, and I think it's important that you hear them speaking to themselves in their own words. You know, the thing is, we are in the South, right? And unlike a lot of the like hospitals in the Northeast or in the West, we serve a very Southern population. This is not a VIP hospital. People are not like flying in from Qatar to get treated here. We treat patients who are just from the community in the South. And yes, my heart sinks every time I go into a room and I watch them watching Fox News, or they have a MAGA hat on, or they're wearing a Confederate belt, right? I, these are the patients that we treat. But Geraldine, I, I will say that the one very good thing about the South that I enjoy is exactly what I alluded to earlier, is that we don't treat VIPs. We treat people from our community. And our community, as, as Auri explained, is majority non-white. And it is wonderful to treat such a diverse group of people in every regard. And that's not an experience that I had in my sabais in other places uh, or that my friends have training in other programs. Do you catch what he was saying? Majority non-white. And I love that. I love treating that group. Now, if you're not watching, what you don't know is that that individual is a person of color. Um, not sure if that person is is black or maybe of <clears throat> Indian descent. Um, not really sure on that one, but it doesn't really matter. This is a person of color talking about this. And then they continue to talk about racism in medicine. In defining racism, in the defining racism part one forum, we define racism. I would like to take the time to restate the definition as a reference for the material that we will be discussing today. Racism is the marginalization and or oppression of people of color based on socially constructed racial hierarchy that privileges white people. Racism involves one group having the power to carry out systematic discrimination through the institutional policies and practices of the society and by shaping the cultural beliefs and values that support those racist policies and practices. That's right, folks. You are literally watching or listening to somebody completely redefine the term racism. Now, I, I would ask this person this. If you are in medicine, do you or do you not actually have literal power of life and death over your patient? Yes, you do in some cases. In a lot of cases, 
There's a reason why these people are going to you, especially if it's emergency medicine. Okay. So what if you are a black person and you hold prejudice against white people and you hold the power of their lives in your hand and you execute based off of DEI and well, that person's not a priority. I got to check on that person of color first because of systematic oppression. They're literally holding your life in their hands and they're just completely redefining actual terms. Just completely redefining it in terms of medicine. What are we doing here? What are we even doing to suggest that a black person in medicine holds no power is insane. They are the same as a white person, as a Asian person, as an Indian person, as a Hispanic person who happens to hold a medical degree and a license to practice medicine. They're all the same. They're the ones that hold the power in that scenario. If you want to go down that racism is about power, but they're not done. You know, it's, I think surgery in general has been, you know, a predominantly white and male dominated field. And that can be very um, off-putting and intimidating for somebody. Um, and I, you know, unfortunately, I think we've probably lost, you know, many brilliant minds just for that reason. They don't feel like they belong. They feel like they're an other. And I think even once you're here, it, it, you can very easily feel like an other just because you don't look like or share a lot of the same experiences as your peers. Okay, the, now this one I think can actually be a very valid point to be made is that there's a lot to be said about having to overprove yourself or feel like you're constantly under a microscope that other people wouldn't necessarily be under. But here's the problem. Medicine, I believe, is in most cases the best of the meritocracy arguments. Can you actually perform the tasks and the duties and the functions of the job that you are being tasked to do. And if you can, great. If you can't, you shouldn't be involved in patient surgery. You shouldn't be involved in whatever field you choose within the medical field, right? That's a reality that we have to deal with. But what we are watching, and Ben continues down this thread further and further and further, pointing out that these individuals are making life and death decisions through the prism of DEI. How do we're teaching our medical students in this country, not to treat every patient the same, to treat them differently based off of their race. It is the very same allegation that was being made in the fifties and the forties and the sixties, right? The experimentation on, on black populations by the CDC and others, right? Using them as the guinea pig or denying them treatment that other patients would necessarily be able to have access to. They're telling you they're going to do the same just in reverse now in the name of equity and inclusion. So if you're a white male, yeah, Get to the back of the line, and if you die, you die. 
This is one of the most pernicious and dangerous uses of DEI in the world because it is literally attempting to life and death through the prism of your inalienable, like you, you can't change characteristics. I can't change the fact that I was born a white man. I can't change that. Even if you believe that I could become a white woman. I, I cannot objectively in the real world, in the team reality land, change any of that. Does that mean I am less deserving of your care or less deserving of proper care by you than anybody else? But you're being taught in medical schools throughout this country, especially at elite institutions like UPenn, Harvard, Duke Medical School, University of Wisconsin's medical school, all sorts of places throughout this country. This is the prism that they begin to teach you through from the get-go. Bend the knee if you haven't already from pre-med or whatever else degree you've gotten. Bend the knee to woke academia and then we'll teach you some of the basics of your job. By the way, um, we must promote people just based off of color first. We've got to look at the color first and not their ability to competently do the job. That's all that I really care about. I don't care one iota about anything else. But I will say it is true that we have to overcome stereotypes of whom can perform this job or that job or whatever. We have to become a society that is blind, yes, blind to assuming one way or another competency based off of race. I definitely agree with that. Let's live in that land, except for you're not asking us to live in that land. You're asking us to give an advantage to somebody who has been, quote-unquote, disadvantaged, except for maybe they physically haven't been. Other people in the past, I can't change that. What I can change is how I treat other people, and I have always looked at them, at anybody in my life, through the lens of, are you a good person? Do we have things that we see in common? And if not, okay, let's move on. And oh, by the way, are you good at your job? Cool, I'm going to go to you. If I believe that you are competent at your job, awesome. It's just that simple. So yes, this is truth. DEI can literally kill you in the doctor's office. But let's go ahead and move forward out of there because we've got one other, I've got one other, not we, I've got one other medical kind of thing from the COVID crazies. Yes, truth or fiction, the COVID crazies will never let it go unless you confront them to their faces. I believe that this is fiction, and I have multiple Proof points, but I want you to listen to the exchange that took place with Dr. Phil on The View, and I know that we have largely banned 
talk of the view on this program uh, in the past, but I believe this is a really vital uh, clue as to why I believe this to be fiction. Like 08, 09, smartphones came on and, and kids started, they stopped living their lives and started watching people live their lives. Mm. And so we saw the biggest spike and the highest levels of depression, anxiety, loneliness, and suicidality since records have ever been kept. Hmm. And it's just continued on and on and on. And then COVID hits 10 years later, and the same agencies that knew that are the agencies that shut down the schools for two years. Who does that? Who takes away the support system for these children? Who takes them away and shuts it down? And by the way, when they shut it down, they stopped the mandated reporters from being able to see children that were being abused and sexually molested and, in fact, sent them home and abandoned them to their abusers with no way to watch. And referrals dropped 50 to 60 percent. So, there was also a yeah. pandemic yeah, going was, on. They were trying to save They were trying lives, to save so kids' well. lives. Remember, we know a lot of folks who died during this. So it wasn't people weren't laying uh, around eating children. bond, but well, you know what? We're lucky. Maybe we're lucky they didn't because we kept them out of the 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 places that they could be, be sick because no one wanted to believe we had an issue. Are you saying no school children died of COVID? I'm saying it was the safest group. They were the less vulnerable group and they suffered and will suffer more from the mismanagement of COVID than they will from the exposure to COVID. And that's not an opinion. That's a fact. Well, All right. So here's why I played that video. I played that video not to tell you, wow, well, that was awesome. And that was a great defense by Dr. Phil. It is to point out when Dr. Phil confronted their insane belief that uh, this was about protecting children and you had to do it because they might have gotten sick, right? And and, and the inference being that they were all going to die if you put them back into schools right away. We were trying our best effort. We were giving our college try, except for we all had the evidence, right, at the time, except for, as Dr. Phil points out, well, we now... We knew all along the health outcomes and and the long-term effects are greater than the short-term effects of COVID-19 infection in children. They didn't care. And, and yes, to, I believe that was either Sonny Hostin or Anna Navarro. I think that was Anna Navarro, actually. Um, yeah, I am saying that hardly any children died of COVID-19 or with COVID-19. And here's exactly why I believe that this is fiction. Because I could tell them that the number of children aged 0 to 18, okay, that's defined as children, right? The number of them that died with, not even from, just with the CDC number, is 1,841. 1,841. You might say, well, that's 1,840. Yeah, okay, you're right. There are 74.1 million kids under the age of 18 in America 
as of 2021. 74.1 million. That 1,841 represents exactly 0.00025. That's four zeros. Zero, 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 two, five percent of that population. That is so statistically insignificant. If you took a a roster of all the things that over the course of those two years or three years, even if you wanted to go there, so statistically insignificant, it wouldn't even show up on a chart of the top 20, 30, 40 things that have killed people in those age ranges for those many years. It wouldn't even register. Furthermore, The CDC stopped stratifying this data this way June of last year because it was so statistically insignificant because it didn't matter anymore. They stopped counting the number of kids that died of or with COVID-19. I mean, here's the reality of why I think this is fiction, though, at this point, because if you are not willing to listen to just a little bit of evidence— if you're not willing to hear somebody else out, like Whoopi Goldberg wasn't listening, she just wanted her point, well, maybe we were lucky. No, we weren't lucky. We had the proof. We had the evidence all around the globe, by the way, to tell us right away after we locked down for a couple of months that, eh, you know what, other places didn't do that, and they're not seeing any sort of issue with the children at all. But if you're not willing to hear anybody else out, you're a lost cause and you're never going to get it. I've said this for the longest time when it comes to the the COVID crazies or COVID to stand people or whatever term you want to use. And this is something I learned very early on in dealing with people in my own family who were of this variety. It didn't matter any of the statistical evidence of the place that they resided in. It didn't matter any of the statistical evidence that I presented about COVID itself or the evidence of the insanity of the modeling. Anything that didn't go into the bucket of their predisposed narrative didn't matter. And it will never matter. These people will never let it go. So it's not about confronting them. It is not about confrontation. Let it go. Let it go. Because you're going to be much better off on your side of the ledger to do so. But know this. The point of this is You have to know whom these people are and make sure they hold zero levers of power on your local, on your county, on your state, and inside the federal government level. They have to hold no powers of uh, no levers of power. They must hold no positions of power anywhere. And that's the important thing. You have to expose them 
Absolutely you do. There's a difference, though. Make your argument so that people know that when they push back on it, they're the crazies, not you. Make sure that they understand they're in the absolute scientific minority. But your audience isn't them. Your audience is everybody else. And make that known to those individuals. That's the reality at play here. 100% the reality is that it is about making sure that we understand where they stand and what levers of power they may or may not even hold. And if they hold the position of COVID crazy, let's say like a Taylor Lorenz or or Whoopi Goldberg or whatever, if they hold any sort of the actual levers of power in our society, not just an opinion lever, but like a real one to lock us down, to do this or to do that, that they're excluded from that ever again, that they are disqualified from that ever again. If you want to see your efforts bear fruit, it's there. Now, Moving forward to the world of politics and the uh, wonderful Donald Trump campaign, because guess what? He won crushing Nikki Haley in the South Carolina primary over the weekend, indicating that it's uh, technically from a electoral standpoint, how you couldn't win your own state. You haven't won New Hampshire. You didn't win Iowa. You've got no path, Nikki Haley. So the final truth or fiction is this. Donald Trump will win because the polls are accurate and they have him leading Biden right now. And the argument is best laid out actually by Michael Knowles of the Daily Wire on his show yesterday in the open of his show, by the way. South Carolinians went to the polls on Saturday to pick the Republican nominee for president and they picked Trump, surprising precisely no one. Trump beat Haley by a roughly 20-point margin, 60 to 40, also surprising no one. So if the story surprises no one, why would I even mention it? Because buried inside this not very newsworthy outcome is something that does matter. The result in South Carolina was within three points of the polling average leading up to it. That, after the Iowa caucuses, turned out to be within four points of the polling average. Even the New Hampshire primary, which came just after DeSantis shook up the whole race by dropping out, even New Hampshire came in pretty close to the polling average, which means this year, in this race, the polls seem to be accurate. And the polls currently have Trump beating Biden in seven swing states, which means much as conservatives love to despair we're always trying to explain how the whole West is lost. Despite all the unfair advantages that the Democrats have in the electoral process, it is simply a fact right now that Donald Trump could very well be the next president of the United States. Now, you might be saying to yourself, uh, what? Um, I'm going to go with absolute fiction on this entire premise of Michael Knowles. And it's not just because moi polls, okay? It's not just because of that. Instead, it has absolutely everything to do with a fundamental misunderstanding of what the hell is going on. 
to assume that Donald Trump is going to become president simply because, well, the polls, right? That's the only evidence that Michael Knowles and others like him are presenting to me fundamentally misunderstands what's going on here. The polls, number one, yes, they have proven to be more accurate in the primary process, but do you not hmm, find that a little bit funny considering how inaccurate they've been quite literally for every election since at least 2014, but at least 2016, 2018, 2020, 2022? And all of them happen to have benefited which side of the aisle, with the exception of 2016, where Trump did catch everybody off guard. But now we're supposed to believe that they they got it all right. Correct? That's what we're supposed to believe here. They got it all right. What you talking about, Willis? Don't look at any other pieces of evidence. Fundamentally, doesn't even deal with the reality that This is just but one piece of the left's puzzle. They want to lull you into a sense of security if you are in MAGA forever. That Donald Trump is totally going to win seven swing states? Wisconsin? Who? Barely elected or re-elected Ron Johnson while saying that Tim Michaels couldn't be governor, which I can make a case is probably logical. Make the same case in which the Republicans are losing ground in every swing area of this country. Name one special election. Name one contested election in which the results have gone better than expected or as expected for the right. I'll wait. The answer is it hasn't. There is zero evidence to suggest that more polls mean anything. Furthermore, this is also to believe that somehow the left won't try to disqualify Trump, won't try to lawfare him out of the process. Also to suggest that the left won't remove Joe Biden from the process. We have no idea what Joe Biden will or won't do between now and September or August or July or whenever their convention is. We have no idea. We have no idea if he will go down even further the dementia road or physical incapacity or succumb to old age or whatever you want to put it or that the Democrats will simply say, no, dude, we we can't have this liability in the White House, and here's your replacement. And it's not Kamala Harris, by the way, or Kamala Harris. To assume that more polls mean anything when it comes to Donald Trump's re-election is a fool's errand, period, point blank. But that notwithstanding, I, I don't know what other pieces of evidence you need to understand that the polls are the least of your concern or least of Trump's concern, the least of things. The polls right now are meant to signal one thing and one thing only. 
get Biden out of office. That's it. This is the operation right now. If this doesn't work, there will be other ways. They will not stop until either they just disqualify Trump, they lawfare him into not being eligible some way, somehow. They have already indicated they won't accept the election even if Trump were the winner in swing states. They have already told you a plan in Congress to not certify the election. They've already told you the plan. What part of this do you not understand if you are in the MAGA Forever camp, if you are in the Michael Knowles camp? He's going to be the next president of the United States. Could it happen? Absolutely. But to believe that this is going to happen simply because he leads in a couple of polls or seven polls in swing states right now? We're in February. We are, let's see here. We are nine months away. We're an entire pregnancy away. Do you know how much can change in nine months? Everything, let alone nine days when it comes to Donald John Trump. I, I don't, to simply sit there and say, well, well, my polls is the weakest argument of all time. If you want to say more polls plus the continuing discrediting of almost every version of the lawfare and the people of America getting sick and tired of it, okay, there's your real core argument is that the American people are just sick and tired of this attempt at literal dictatorship, right? Now, speaking of sick and tired, people back in, I don't know, about 1789 or so, were a little sick and tired of the Articles of Confederation. So it's time for us to talk about the Federalist Papers number 15 today. That's right, it is Federalist Papers number 15 under the microscope. And this one is titled, The Insufficiency of the Present Confederation to Preserve the Union. I don't know if you need any interpretation of that one because it's pretty obvious, but Alexander Hamilton is back after Madison's brief appearance as the author of this particular essay. And we are actually starting to switch gears as we begin to look at the deficiencies of where things stand with the Articles of Confederation instead of what we got in the first 14 essays, which were focused on the case of union versus confederacy. So Hamilton opens with a note in this one, and it is a note um, that tells us why they have to argue on the case of union, not just against Confederacy. And Hamilton begins saying that in the course of the preceding papers, I have endeavored, my fellow citizens, to place before you in a clear and convincing light the importance of union to your political safety and happiness. I have unfolded to you a con complication of dangers to which you would be exposed. Should you permit that sacred knot which binds the people of America together to be severed or dissolved by ambition or by avarice, by jealousy, or by misrepresentation? 
In the sequel of the inquiry through which I propose to accompany you, the truths intended to be inculcated will f receive further confirmation from facts and arguments hereto throw unnoticed. If the road over which you will still have to pass should in some places appear to you tedious or irksome, you will recollect that you are in quest of information on a subject the most mo momentous which can engage the attention of a free people, that the field through which you will have to travel is itself spacious, and that the difficulties of the journey have been unnecessarily increased by the mazes with which sophistry has beset the way. It will be my aim to remove the obstacles from your progress in a compendious a manner as it can be done without sacrificing utility to dispatch. So in other words, um, I'm going to tell you exactly why I believe in supporting the Constitution, right? And he follows that up with a response to the, uh, well, hold up, but is anybody really actually arguing this point, argument, by the way? Because that's what a lot of people were like, "What? what's going on here? Like, does anybody actually believe the Articles of Confederation are, are good? Why argue something that which most men would know to be true almost inherently, right? That's really what's going on here. But he continues in saying that in pursuance of the plan, which I have laid down for the discussion of the subject, the point next in order to be examined is the quote-unquote insufficiency of the present confederation to the preservation of the union. It may perhaps be asked what need there is of reasoning or proof to illustrate a position which is not either controverted or doubted, to which the understandings and feelings of all classes of men assent. In which, is, in which in substance is admitted by the opponents as well as by the friends of the new constitution. It must in truth be acknowledged that, however these may differ in other respects, they in general appear to harmonize in this sentiment, at least that there are material imperfections in our national system and that something is necessary to be done to rescue us from impending anarchy. The facts that support this opinion are no longer objects of speculation, they have forced themselves upon the sensibility of the people at large and have at length extorted from those whose mistaken policy has had the principal share in precipitating the extremity at which we are arrived, a, reluctance, uh, a reluctant confession of the reality of those defects in the scheme of our federal government, which have been long pointed out and regretted by the intelligent friends of the Union. And as if that wasn't enough of a reason, Hamilton literally, in the very next paragraph, calls the Articles of Confederation an embarrassment and humiliating. Ouch. He says that we may indeed with propriety be said to have reached almost the last stage of national humiliation. There is scarcely anything that can wound the pride or degrade the character of an independent nation which we do not experience are there engagements to the performance of which we are held by every tie respectable among men? These are the subjects of constant and unblushing violation. Do we owe debts to foreigners and to our own citizens contracted in a time of imminent peril for the preservation of our political existence? These remain without any proper or satisfactory provision for their discharge, a.k.a. we haven't lived up to our commitments. 
have we valuable territories and important posts in the possession of a foreign power, which, by express stipulations, ought long since to have been surrendered? These are still retained to the prejudice of our interest, not less than of our rights. Are we in a condition to resent or to repel the, the aggression? We have neither troops nor treasury nor government. Are we in a condition to remonstrate with dignity? The just imputations on our own faith in respect to the same treaty ought first to be removed. Are we entitled by nature and compact to a free participation in the navigation of the Mississippi? Spain excludes us from it. Is public credit an indis uh, indispensable resource in time of public danger? We seem to have abandoned its cause as desperate and ir irretrievable. Is commerce of importance to national wealth? Ours is at the lowest point of declination. Is respectability in the eyes of foreign powers a safeguard against foreign encroachments? The Im imbecility of our government even forbids them to treat with us. Our ambassadors abroad are the mere pageants of mimic sovereignty. Is it violent and unnatural decreased in the value of a land a symptom of national distress? The price of improved land in most parts of the country is much lower than can be accounted for by the quantity of waste land at market and can only be fully explained by the want of private and public confidence, which are so alarmingly prevalent among all ranks and which have a direct tendency to depreciate property of every kind. Is, it, is private credit the friend and patron of industry? That most useful kind which relates to borrowing and lending is reduced within the narrowest limits, and this still more from an opinion of insecurity than from the scarcity of money. To shorten an enumeration of particulars which can afford neither pleasure nor instruction, it may in general be demanded. What indication is there of national disorder, poverty, and insignificance that could befall a community so peculiarly blessed with natural advantages as we are, which does not form a part of the dark catalog of our public misfortunes. Whoa, folks. This is literally Alexander Hamilton laying bare all of the issues and saying this is because we have weak government. Now, he continues on because if we all know, right, as he points out, that the Union suffered badly under the Articles of Confederation, why the debate, right? Well, Hamilton gives us the best reason for the debate, because there are those who oppose a remedy to the problem, period, point, blank. That's right. They just oppose any sort of remedy. They don't think there is a real problem. He says, it is true, as has been before observed, that facts, too sovereign to be resisted, have produced a species of general assent to the abstract proposition that there exist material defects in our national system. But the usefulness of the concession on the part of old adversaries of federal measures is destroyed by a strenuous opposition to a remedy upon the only principles that can give it a chance of success. While they admit that the government of the United States is destitute of energy, they contend against conferring upon it those powers which are requested and requisite, I should say, which are re requisite to supply that energy. They seem still to aim at things repugnant and irreconcilable, at an augmentation of federal authority without a diminution of state authority, at sovereignty in the Union and complete independence in its members. They still, in fine, seem to cherish with blind devotion the political monster of an imperium in imperio. This renders a full display of the principal defects of the Confederation necessary in order to show that the evils we experience do not proceed 
from minute or partial imperfections, but from fundamental errors in the structure of the building, which cannot be amended otherwise than by an alteration in the first principles and main pillars of the fabric. AKA, hey, yo, um, we have real problems, and if you can't realize that, I can't help you. But he goes on to point out, so what exactly are the issues in the Articles of Confederation? Well, chief amongst them, according to Hamilton, is the fact that the laws of the federal government are just mere suggestions at this point that states have proven to either adhere to or ignore at their own will, stating the following. The great and radical vice in the construction of the existing confederation is the principle of legislation for states or governments in their corporate or collective capacities and as contradistinguished from the individuals of which they consist. Though this principle does not run through all the powers delegated to the union, yet it pervades the govern and governs those on which the efficacy of the rest depends. Except as to the rule of appointment, the United States has an indefinite discretion to make requisitions for men and money, but they have no authority to raise either by regulations extending to the individual citizens of America. The consequence of this, that though in theory their resolutions concerning those objects are laws constitutionally binding on the members of the union, yet in practice they are more mere recommendations which the states observe or disregard at their opinion, at their option, excuse me, not opinion. Again, this is to state that things are so weak they can't even enforce the regulation, right? And that there's no reach of the individual. It is literally, we just tell the state and then then, then the state kind of does whatever the heck they want. Now, he goes on to point out that even a total split and no real federal government could be preferable to the current state of affairs, although also impractical in reality. That's how much Alexander Hamilton hated the Articles of Confederation, folks. He goes on to say that if the particular states in this country are disposed to stand in a similar relation to each other and to drop the project of a general discretionary superintendence, the scheme would indeed be pernicious and would entail upon us all the mischiefs which have been enumerated under the first head. But it would have the merit of being, at least, consistent and practicable, abandoning all views towards a confederate government. This would bring us to a simple alliance, offensive and defensive, and would place us in a situation to be alternate friends and enemies of each other, as our mutual jealousies and rivalships, nourished by the intrigues of four nations, should prescribe to us. <coughs> now, but if one doesn't want to split up, then, well, he says that the only answer is to do something different than that is currently in place. And that Hamilton says that government must deal with the people directly and not the states in which they live. And that is the main crux of the issue that Hamilton has, and that's how he sees it. Noted almost from the get-go in this essay, by the way, but he continues to state the following. But if we are unwilling to be placed in this perilous situation of absolute split, right, if we are unwilling to be placed in this perilous situation, if we still will adhere to the design of a national government or, which is the same thing, of a superintending power under the direction of a common council, we must resolve to incorporate into our plan those ingredients which may be considered as forming the characteristic 
difference between a league and a government. We must extend the authority of the union to the persons of the citizens, the only proper objects of government. And that is to say, Hamilton believes the only way that governments are proper is they confer rights and responsibilities not to states, not to governments, but to people. To those in the back who can't um, understand that um, our rights do not come from governments, they come from a higher power, as noted in almost every founding document. Our rights are inherent because they're natural. And natural law comes from God. Sorry, not sorry on that one. But Hamilton points out further that laws, in order for them to actually be laws, as he noted before, have to come with a force of punishment or penalty for disobedience, right? But that's not what goes on in the Articles of Confederation, as he noted in the past. But he continues saying, There was a time when we were told that breaches by the states of the regulations of the federal authority were not to be expected. Come on, people, that's not going to happen that a sense of common interest would preside over the conduct of the respective members and would beget a full compliance with all the constitutional requisitions of the union. This language, at the present day, would appear as wild as a great part of which we now hear from the same quarter will be thought, when we still, when we shall have received further lessons from that beside oracle of wisdom, or that best oracle of wisdom, experience, Basically, what is he stating? He is stating, we have all the experience that uh, this doesn't work. And it all boils down to this for Hamilton. We tried a confederation. So what are you arguing for? Smaller confederations? We tried next to no government at a federal level, and it was an absolute disaster. We have a remedy for you. And he thinks it to be good. And this is how he ends uh, Federalist Paper number 15. In our case, the concurrence of 13 distinct sovereigns, uh, sovereign wills is requisite under the Confederation to the complete execution of every important measure that proceeds from the Union. It has happened as we have been foreseen. The measures of the Union have not been executed. The delinquencies of the states have, step by step, matured themselves to an extreme which has, at length, arrested all the wheels of the national government and brought them to an awful stand. Congress at this time scarcely possesses the means of keeping up with the forms of administration till the states can have time to agree upon a more substantial substitute for the present shadow of a federal government. Things did not come to this desperate extremity at once. The causes which have been specified produced at first only unequal and disproportionate degrees of compliance with the requisitions of the Union. The greater deficiencies of some states furnish the pretext of example and the temptation of interest to the complying or to the least delinquent states. Why should we do more in uh, proportion than those who are embarked with us in the same political voyage? In other words, hey, we're not, you're not pulling your weight, we're pulling all the weight. Hmm, NATO? Uh, Anyway, why should we consent to bear more than our proper share of the common burden? These were suggestions which human selfishness could not withstand, in which even speculative men who looked forward to remote consequences could not, without hesitation, combat each state, yielding to the pervasive voice of immediate interest or convenience, has successively withdrawn its support, till the frail and tottering edifice seems ready to fall upon our heads and to crush us beneath its ruins." 
In other words, y'all, this is about to really ruin us, and uh, we've got to do something. And that something is passing the Constitution. And with that, folks, I leave you and bid you adieu. Please be smart, be safe, be kind. Make sure you eat all of your meals today. And as always, Matthew 547. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.